Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of World of Wallace and Gromit, the podcast, where today we'll be looking at Wallace and Gromit's feature-length adventure, The Curse of the Were-Rabbit. Now, for those of you wondering why this episode is not on cracking contraptions, since that was the next animation for the duo chronologically, don't worry, I'll be coming back to them in a later episode, but wanted to start with the longer films. I've really enjoyed finding out more about the background of how this film came to fruition, and I hope you'll find it interesting too. So, on with the show. Oh, tight, lad. I'll think of Lancashire hot pot. To understand the situation surrounding the making of The Curse of the Were-Rabbit, we need to head back a few years, before it was even an idea, to the time when Ardman had just finished The Wrong Trousers. Ardman Animations were expanding businesses, and it was important to Ardman co-founders Peter Lord and David Sproxton to do this sustainably. Yes, it was important to ensure the necessary changes are made within the company to make expansion possible, but also to look outwards and consider its position within the film industry. It had a few awards under its belt, so it was becoming a globally recognised name, but Lord and Sproxton didn't want to rush into anything. They both believed that making feature films would be an important part of the company in the future, but also understood Hollywood could be a brutal place, and saw many British film companies rise and fall after being involved in deals which were not sustainable. The world's biggest animation company, Disney, even approached Ardman with a three-movie deal, which Lord and Sproxton admit was tempting, but would also mean that Disney would own the intellectual property rights to any Ardman future ideas, and be in control of everything, which could apply to a future Wallace and Gromit film. Ardman's independence was hugely important to them, and the air of arrogance about Disney didn't sit with them well at all. The right deal was crucial to the company's future, and so they turned down the Disney offer. Warner Brothers also tried to get a deal with Ardman, and apparently pretty much gave them a clean slate for developing a deal initially, but when it came down to it, what they actually offered was on the same lines as Disney had. Whilst Ardman were in Los Angeles meeting all these Hollywood executives, they were eventually pointed in the direction of a man named Jake Eberts, who had originally been an investment banker, but was fascinated by films, so after starting to invest in them, became a producer. He had revived many struggling British films and had box office hits and Oscar success in Hollywood, so was familiar with the way things worked, yet had a different outlook to a lot of Hollywood executives that Ardman had met. His personality was a better fit with Ardman, and they instantly took a liking to him. He came up with a plan for getting Ardman's feature film off the ground through his own company, Allied Filmmakers, in conjunction with a French film company, Pathé, as well as arranging meetings with studio bosses, which Ardman could now approach with a stronger hand. Eberts was a massive help to Lord and Sproxton at a time when they were feeling very disheartened by the whole LA experience. Although not an obvious choice for Ardman, in January 1996, a close shave was shown at the Sundance Film Festival, which Eberts saw as having major advantages, as this festival had become a favourite for Hollywood studio executives and agents to check out the new filmmakers around, with the view of signing them up. Following this, Eberts was able to organise meetings for Ardman with the Hollywood studios currently showing an interest in animation. However, there was one relevant studio missing from the Sundance Festival that year, which had opened for business in the previous year, DreamWorks. In 1994, Jeffrey Katzenberg left Disney and started DreamWorks with co-founders Steven Spielberg and David Geffen. Eberts contacted Katzenberg, who headed up the animation division in the company, to tell him that Ardman were going to Sundance. Katzenberg then proposed that he would have the DreamWorks private jet pick Peter Lord, 
Wallace and Gromit create a neat park. Ebert's and Ardman's head of development, Michael, rose up at the nearest airport to the festival and then fly them back to dine in LA with himself and the legendary film director, Steven Spielberg, that same evening. Finally, Ardman had the chance to talk to two Hollywood bigwigs on a level playing field and pitch them an idea for a film, Chicken Run. I'm planning on doing a bonus episode all about Chicken Run, so you'll have to keep an eye out for that to know the details of what happened in that meeting. But in short, the pitch was a success, and Chicken Run went on to be Ardman's first feature film, and a dry run, if you like, to make sure they could do a feature film to the high standards they set. Instead of jumping in with a feature-length Wallace and Gromit film, they wanted to start with completely new characters for the first one they did, just in case it wasn't as good as they wanted, and had then tarnished Wallace and Gromit in the process by using them. As soon as they were finishing up with Chicken Run's production, Katzenberg asked Ardman what they had planned for the next movie. At this point, there was nothing definite to announce, but this was one of Katzenberg's tactics for keeping Ardman on their toes. When it came to writing The Curse of the Were-Rabbit, Nick Park and screenwriter Bob Baker had devised a plot almost accidentally for a vegetarian horror movie while working on ideas for a BBC Wallace and Gromit book. In a two-hour pitch to Katzenberg, Nick Park and Steve Box, who worked on previous Wallace and Gromit films with Nick, explained the outlines of the story. Katzenberg was worried that the story might be too British for American tastes, but gave a positive go-ahead for the idea. As DreamWorks were more comfortable with two directors, Nick asked Steve if he'd like to co-direct, as he had a similar style of working with Wallace and Gromit, and Nick liked his energy. The two of them, together with Bob Baker, got down to work on a script for the film, and were later joined by Mark Burton, who had helped with the Chicken Run script. Following this was a long two-hour eccentric and very un-Hollywood pitch to Katzenberg, which included a little song from Steve on the ukulele, but it had all the ingredients for a brilliant film, and so the decision was settled. DreamWorks would make the film. Unfortunately, by this time, the general relationship between Ardman and DreamWorks was turning a little sour, with conflicting viewpoints on ownership rights and box office profits. With the help of an American entertainment lawyer, Michael Rose brokered the right deal for Ardman, which, if DreamWorks didn't agree to, Ardman would simply walk away, confident they could make the film alternatively as a one-off TV special with funds from the BBC and other broadcasters. Katzenberg was initially taken aback at their tough negotiating stance, but eventually agreed, and it all worked out happily, although it wasn't going to be plain sailing from then. The Curse of the Were-Rabbit tells the story of Wallace and Gromit, now running a vegetable security and humane pest control business, Antipesto, trying to protect the town's vegetables from damage, in lieu of the giant vegetable competition coming up, held at Tottington Hall. Unfortunately, while trying out his new mind manipulation omatic invention, Wallace manages to create a giant were-rabbit monster, which appears at night and ravages any veg it can get its paws on, threatening the giant vegetable competition. Voiced by Helena Bonham Carter, Lady Tottington of Tottington Hall is a bunny-loving woman, and so is drawn to Antipesto with their humane pest control, in contrast with a certain Lord Victor Quartermain, who would rather shoot the rabbits. Wallace and Victor Quartermain then enter a rivalry to both catch the rare rabbit and win Lady Tottington's heart. After Antipesto failed to catch the beast with their trap, both Victor and Gromit discover that it's in fact Wallace himself who transforms into a veg-loving giant rabbit when the sun goes down. It looks like it might all be over for Wallace at the giant vegetable competition when, in rabbit form, he finds himself in the firing line of Victor's gun. After an action-packed 
chase on top of Tottington Hall, including a literal dogfight. It seems Wallace is a goner. Luckily, with help from Lady Tottington, Gromit disposes of Victor and coaxes Wallace back to the land of the living with a slice of stinking bishop cheese. Cheese. There were lots of names that were potential options for this film. Wallace and Gromit and the Veggie Burglars, Bunny Trouble, Run Rabbit Run, but the name Nick liked best for the film was The Great Vegetable Plot, a witty play on words which attributes part of Arvin's style. However, after doing some research, they found out that the word vegetable didn't appeal to American children, so they came up with the alternative spoof horror movie The Curse of the Were-Rabbit, which received widespread approval on both sides of the Atlantic. Fun fact, the Spanish title of the film literally translates to The Battle of the Vegetables. Other differences in style between the studios were things like Katzenberg asking if the antipesto vehicle, which is an Austin A35 van, had to have rust on it. Yes, sighed Ardman, the rust is essential. Whilst British audiences tend to favour underdog characters, Americans prefer the aspirational social climber types, so in his mind they would have had a gleaming pickup truck. About six weeks from shooting the final ending of the film, Arpin didn't feel it was quite right, despite the whole film going through numerous refinement and iterative processes. It was originally going to end with a sort of false wedding, where you think Wallace and Lady Tottington are getting married, but then it turns out that Lady Tottington is actually marrying PC Macintosh, and Wallace and Gromit wave them on their way. Despite it being funny if Totty had fancied PC Macintosh, given he was a big cynic about the whole veg competition, it felt a bit random. Luckily, Ardman managed to come up with an ending that we see in the film, which was much stronger, and despite the rewrite holding up the shoot four or five weeks, it all worked out for the best. As with previous Wallace and Gromit films, the team at Ardman were influenced by other films when making this one. For example, Dr Jekyll and Mr Hyde, they liked the idea of the universal horror movie genre, but what if, instead of a werewolf, there was a were-rabbit? The film needed to be dramatic, but also funny, so the were-rabbit had to scare the townsfolk and threaten vegetables, but also be friendly. A big, misunderstood teddy bear. One of the biggest challenges for actually making the film was building the were-rabbit itself. When designing the puppet, the model makers and animators had to first look at how the puppet needed to move by animating an armature, which is a wire skeleton, to work out lengths of joints and bones and so on. The puppet also needed to have lots of rigging points because it's so active. Rigging points are used to connect the puppets to rigs, which are basically support systems hidden in the final film, and help make the puppet jump or keep its balance when gravity would normally cause it to topple over. The were-rabbit uses its shoulders to express a lot of its emotions, so the puppet also had to be able to cope with lots of shoulder movement. It was important to give the were-rabbit a softer, more cuddly feel than the other characters, so plasticine wasn't going to work. Working with fur was a new challenge for the animators, as you can tell the puppet has been touched a lot more with fur than with clay. To try and avoid this, the model makers had to design a system of manoeuvrable joints that could be moved without touching the fur by inserting rods which could move sections of the puppet. For the fur itself, traditional teddy bear fur wasn't stretchy enough, so they had to go to a supplier in the States who could provide movie fur which could stretch four ways, which was more expensive, but worth it for the end result. Initially, they planned on only making one were-rabbit puppet, but it soon became apparent that a running rabbit would also be needed as well. 
To get all the different facial expressions, about four or five different replacement heads were made. These use different structures to do different jobs, like the howl head is different to the smile head. Actually building the head was a different process to previous puppet heads as well, as lots of movement was needed from the nose, jaw, brow, cheeks and ears, which all had to be designed. Also, normally with plasticine, you can just put the eyes in the socket and they stay there. But because this puppet was made of fur, they had to create magnetic eyes which stayed in instead. The scene where Wallace transforms into the furry were-rabbit was hard and just sorting the leg transformation took about a year to devise. The transformation was eventually achieved with a combination of stretching plasticine and pushing fur into holes. As mentioned in episode 4 of this podcast, the idea for Lady Tottington originated when coming up with characters for a close shave. She went through a multitude of changes before arriving at the tall, slender, extraordinarily dressed lady with wide hair we see her as on screen. Lady Tottington's wardrobe was largely inspired by nature, such as floral gowns and a particularly striking sweet corn ensemble which we see in the film. In contrast with Lady Tottington, Victor Quartermain is short and wide with tall hair and was originally going to be known as Lorne Wormold, who owned the garden in which Wallace worked. Lady Tottington then replaced him and he became her son Tristram before turning into her hapless suitor, Victor. What ho! <laughs> for you, my love. The crew for The Curse of the Were-Rabbit numbered 250, a massive jump from previous films, and the 85-minute film took five years to make. We meet lots of new characters in this film and learn a bit more about where Wallace and Gromit live. For lots of the town folk, Nick drew inspiration from his childhood love of the Beano, and you can particularly see comparisons with the Bass Street kids with some of the townsfolk children. One of my favourite parts of Wallace and Gromit films is all the visual gags in the scenes, which you don't notice at first, but the more you watch a film, the more you see. Things like the punny articles in the newspapers, the adverts on the sides of the buildings, where a particular one for Metabix pays homage to a certain cardboard box in the wrong trousers. The may-contain-nuts box, the jars and packets whose names are play on words, things like that, as well as the visual humour, like in the church when Lady Tottington stands with a lamp above her head and a winged book behind her, making her look like an angel, whilst Victor stands in front of a pronged part of a pew, making him look satanic. This was the first film I ever saw in the cinema when I think I was about seven, so quite a few years before I properly became a Wallace and Gromit fan. And I remember coming out of the film having thoroughly enjoyed it and replaying memorable scenes in my mind for weeks after. Unlike a lot of films for family audiences, I love that it is one of those fantastic films with multiple layers for all ages, so I still get just as much enjoyment out of it now, but from the more subtle humour and underlying references you don't understand as a child. Like the previous films, we also get to see lots of Wallace's inventions, including an improved wake-up system, which has a rather Rube Goldberg machine feel to it, as well as the mind manipulation omatic and the Bumvac 6000. I like when Victor shoots the rabbit a split second after it gets sucked down its rabbit hole by the Bumvac 6000, so it emerges into the glass rabbit container in a heavenly state, only for the viewer to be amused that it's just part of the machine's storage. Ah, the old BV 6000, Mum. Uh, capable of 125 RPM. That's rabbits per minute. As he had done so for the previous Wallace and Gromit films, Julian Knott composed the soundtrack to The Curse of the Were-Rabbit, and I must say there are some scenes which are improved so much by the choice of music, but in a relatively subtle way, so the viewer doesn't realise but appreciates the effect. 
On the other hand, in some scenes, the choices behind music references are certainly not subtle. The scene where Gromit is trying to attract the were-rabbit by posing as a lady rabbit springs to mind. The film was released in 2005 to great acclaim, grossing $192.6 million at the box office and won the 2006 Oscar for Best Animated Feature Film, only the second non-American film to achieve this. It also won two awards at the BAFTAs and over 30 awards and nominations at film festivals all over the world. As of June 2020, it's actually the second highest grossing stop-motion animated film of all time, behind its predecessor, Chicken Run. There is always a risk when doing a feature-length film with a very large team that the charm and craftsmanship of the earlier films could have been lost. I'd say that whilst there were obviously some compromises that Aardman had to make with regard to working with DreamWorks, they've overall stayed true to their style, and it's resulted in the production of a timeless classic. There are so many little pieces in the jigsaw of the film, I'm sure I've missed loads of things I should have mentioned in this brief segment I've put together here. One thing you can be sure of is that despite its many challenges, The Curse of the Were-Rabbit was a massive deal for Wallace and Gromit, and a huge achievement for a small Bristol studio. They had asserted their position on the world stage, whilst remaining true to their unique style, and they deserve a lot of credit for that. What do you think of that then, Gromit? The book I've chosen for this week's review is Wallace and Gromit's Grand Adventures and Glorious Inventions, published by Carlton in 2008. The book is set out as Wallace's inventing scrapbook, and so has all these wonderful written comments from him and responding remarks from Gromit throughout the book. It's jam-packed with lots of little segments arranged like they've been stuck in, and adds a little background to the personality of Wallace, which we don't always see in the details of the films. We know that he likes cheese with Wensleydale being his favourite, but in this book we find out that his top five are Wensleydale, Cheddar, Stinking Bishop, Cheshire and Stilton. We also get to see the full layout of 62 West Wallaby Street, right down to the different wallpapers used, and we get different snippets of extra details from all the different films. One of my favourite bits is a little pull-out book of the giant vegetable competition, A Chronicle of Disasters, apparently written by Mr Archibald Grobag, and lists with information the giant mole incursion of 1527, the aphid plague of 1690, the great table collapse of 1841, the compost scandal of 1922, the great slug blight of 1932, the anti-cruelty to vegetables protest of 1968, the grand fraud of 1972, the runaway lawnmower of 1988, and finally, the curse of the were-rabbit. Overall, I'd say this was a nice book to flick through every so often, and ties all the main films up together nicely. There's nothing completely new in there, like a new story or anything, but there's stuff in there for both adults and kids, and all the little details will definitely make you smile. Uh, well that ends well, that's what I say. I hope you've enjoyed today's rather longer than usual episode. Join us next time when we'll be looking at the dastardly deeds of Paella Bakewell in a matter of loaf and death. See you then. From me, from Gromit, from Arge. Au revoir, chucks.